This broadcast is courtesy of FS. Peak performance at harvest is a necessity. It's our expertise. Producers who look to have a successful harvest turn to FS. Our grain systems experts reduce downtime by offering the latest products, innovations, and knowledge to your grain operation. Whether you need a part in a hurry or advice on your equipment, we'll keep you running. At FS, we're always looking for ways to optimize your grain system and ensure during harvest your operation is ready for what's next. So visit FSSystem.com and let's get you headed towards your next success. FS, bringing you what's next. And now, let's go live to the Patent Block building in downtown Monmouth for the annual Fall FS Ag Roundtable. Welcome to the Patent Block. We are upstairs in uh, the third building. We call this the Patent Room here at uh, the Patent Block. And we are live for our 2021 FS Ag Roundtable, brought to us today by Growmark FS, our partner for a very long time. Brendan Marshall is with us to represent Growmark FS. And uh, most people know Brendan uh, out in the fields doing the hard work with the farmers. Brendan, welcome to the show. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So. Thank you for the longtime partnership. Midwest Bank, of course, who is our longtime uh, host as well as partner in this event. Chris Gavin is with us, the president. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Vanessa. Thanks for having us again. Absolutely. We really enjoy this day. Also, Traditional Amish Hardwoods, one of our sponsors this morning. Big River Resources, a longtime partner to us again for this roundtable. Uh, we do have Jim Lighting on the panel. He is our president and CEO. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Also, Elliott Brothers Seed Company, another good partner uh, with us for the Ag Roundtable, as well as the radio station, Rob Elliott, with us on the panel. Thank you very much, Rob. Certainly, Vanessa. Pleasure to be here. Monmouth College is also a sponsor this morning. My co-moderator is a retired Monmouth College professor, Ken McMillan. Ken, thanks for agreeing to co-moderate this with me. You're welcome. I don't uh, know if you know what you're in for, but it's a lot of fun. I'll just turn it back to you if I get in hot water. <laughs> OSF Holy Family Healthcare. Also with us, you heard from Stephanie Hilton this morning at the uh, breakfast regarding the bushels for care. Warren Henderson Farm Bureau, our longtime partner. Our president is here, Mr. Jake Armstrong. Jake, thanks for hosting uh, the breakfast with me this morning and being here today. No problem. It was an excellent event, and I'm excited to do this as well. Also, Martin Sullivan, Compere Financial, and Halcom Oil, our lunch today by the Patent Block Grill and Brew Pub. Let's also meet the rest of our panelists. Our keynote speaker this morning at the breakfast was Mr. Brian Duncan, who is the Vice President with the Illinois Farm Bureau. Brian, thanks for making your way over here. You're also a farmer, not just a representative of the Farm Bureau, so thanks to you and all the farmers as we get ready for harvest. As you heard, our bumper music today is Here's to the Farmer. Thank you for having me, Vanessa. I always look forward to this event. And with us as well, we heard from State Representative Noreen Hammond, who just came back from Springfield about midnight last night. Thank you for getting up, coming, and being at the breakfast and being on this panel. Thank you, Vanessa. It's a great opportunity, and um, if, if I had had to come from Springfield straight here, I still would have done it because I really appreciate this and what you do. Thank you very much. Of course, we've known Noreen at the radio stations for 20 years when we had our Macomb stations, and I had a chance to, to meet her 20 years ago, so thank you. I don't know who had the longer drive. Was it Noreen or was it State Representative Dan Swanson, who was also on the House floor last night? Welcome to the program, Dan. Thank you, Vanessa. And it's not a long drive when you're out checking the crops on the way over here. So I got to check the corn and the beans on the way. And as I look around this room, I'm just uh, fascinated with the wealth of knowledge that you're able to bring together to these round tables, Vanessa. And, uh, and I hope our listeners are all able to, uh, to learn something from this group because I know I sit here as a participant, but I take a lot of notes and learn a lot too. So thank you. Thank you, State Representative Dan Swanson. Ron Moore with us, our retired chairman of the American Soybean Association, also another local farmer like many in this room and many listening. Ron, I hope your harvest is well and thank you for coming today. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoy this. As, as other people have said, this is a, a learning experience for a lot of us here. 
And uh, next to you is our Illinois State Senator, 47th District, Jill Tracy, longtime friend to this Ag Roundtable as well. Senator Tracy, welcome. Thank you, and I'm delighted to be here. And as everybody said, you've you put together a, a great conglomerate of, of uh, wisdom, and I always learn much from these events. So thank you for putting it on. It's our pleasure. You can listen today right here on AM 1330, WRAM, or FM 94.1. Welcome to our online listeners at RadioMonmouth.com. Also, Victor Dantas is here from Clear Profits. He is videoing this, so going forward, we'll be able to not only share this with you uh, later, if you can't hear it today or you want others to hear it, it'll be available on Spotify, Google, and Apple, as well as the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau page. Ellie Burns is in our audience. She's uh, manning the radio force, so a part of this production today. She is with Carl Sandburg College, and she is working uh, uh, diligently on ag programming. I shouldn't say programming. That's radio. Ag content for a degree uh, through Carl Sandburg College. So appreciate your interest in being here. I know Dr. Riley, a big uh, fan of agriculture programming. Okay, let's get started. Number one on our list, you heard a little bit this morning, a condensed version about the Illinois energy legislation, its impact on our lives, not just the agricultural uh, industry, but its impact on the state of Illinois. That's what I learned from our state representatives this morning. Last night, yesterday, starting at noon through last night at midnight, you were working on this. Who would like to uh, tell us about that energy legislation? Thank you. It, it was... Um once again, a, a, it's a piece of legislation that's been worked on for several years. And uh, most recently, it came down to a, a struggle. Um, the governor has said he, his legacy is he wanted to, to make Illinois a fossil-free um, state. And uh, with this legislation, it's, it appears that's where we're going. Um, it's, like I said, it's been a long time working on it. Uh, most recently, probably in the last six months, is when it really kicked into a high gear. And uh, as, it, as all the work went on, it got to be an interesting debate and battle between the environmentalist folks who wanted um, their energy and then also um, the power plants, the nuclear plants. The nuclear plants were threatening to shut down because they needed to refuel. And if they were not going to be able to continue as a, a viable power plant, then why would they spend the millions of dollars to, to refuel? Um, they put several deadlines in. Their most current deadline was 13 September that they had to refuel by then or they would be permanently shutting down. And then also the uh, coal fire plant, the Prairie State coal fire plant uh, was also in the mix on the discussions. And uh, it came to be, you know, the, the plants, the, the union representations, the pipe fitters, the laborers, all of those who work during the shutdowns or work at these power plants, of course, were very, a very strong voice too and that they did not want to see their plants shut down. So it got to be quite a battle between those two groups, uh, environmentalists and also the uh, uh, labor groups and union members. Um, finally, um, and I'll let Jill talk about it on her side, but the Senate worked and completed. Uh, President Harmon was very determined to keep all the plants open as best he could, representing the, the laborers in, in his legislation. And what they were able to get that passed last week. And then this yesterday, um, what just I think Tuesday, we were told we're coming, pack your bags, you're coming to Springfield on Thursday. Um, because the House had their own version of legislation. Um, Speaker Welch assigned, uh, there were already a team working on this. Speaker Welch assigned Representative Marcus Evans to kind of head up the team and be the, uh, the, to actually carry the legislation. So we went to Springfield yesterday. Um, we were told to be there at noon. There was a committee hearing scheduled. Of course, all bills have to go through committee. This bill not being of any exception, it had an amendment on it to change it from the bill it was to a energy bill. And uh, we were told to be there at 10. I got there early at, by 10 o'clock so I could watch the committee hearing what was delayed because they were continuing to work on amendments. Finally, the committee started at 11 o'clock. They had their committee hearing. It lasted about an hour and 40 minutes with a lot of discussion from both sides of the argument. Um, the Illinois Manufacturers Association, of course, with their position, many of the, the Sierra Club and those organizations um, talked 
as a proponent and opponent to the legislation. Finally, it, uh, that committee ended. We went into session then about 2 o'clock after being told to be there at noon. Went into session at 2 o'clock. We caucused for an hour, an hour and a half to discuss the legislation. Um, of course, it put a lot of our members in some very difficult positions. Um, those who had um, nuclear plants within their current districts and those who were going to their new district, those nuclear plants would be in. It was very emotional. There were tears shed in caucus over how they were going to have to vote. And it was, you know, the position that they were put in with this legislation. Um, after caucus, we went back up on the floor and then they presented another amendment to the bill. So while they were going through that amendment, we took action on how, uh, Senate Bill 539, which was an ethics bill, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. Finally at, uh, was it, uh, what I have in my notes here? Finally at uh, 1900 hours, 7 p.m., we finally started debating on the bill, and it was debated for over two hours, about two hours and 43 minutes, we debated the bill. And uh, it was able to pass, um, was it 82 to 33 or something like that. Um, it's kind of curious too, there were a lot of members not present, so um, we also incorporated um, uh, Zoom system so that members could vote from their home. And uh, so that took some extra time too to vote. But uh, we'll talk about the, get down here in the weeds here also in a little bit. I'll, sh I'll turn, I'll, I'll be quiet now, let Noreen and, and Jill possibly fill in some of what they have too. Okay, um, I'll start with uh, Representative Hammond still in the House. Uh, can you give us some of the bullet points of what is in this 900, I believe you said this morning over 900 pages. Right, it was a 958 page document. Um, in the in the final amendment, there were five amendments uh, that uh, we went through. Two of those amendments were um, sponsored by Republican members of the House, and they were ruled inapplicable. So um, we were ended with the final Fifth Amendment, uh, 958 pages. Um, it was given to us because you have to wait an hour uh, for that amendment uh, to go through rules. And so we had about an hour on that 958-page amendment. Um, I can read fast, but I can't absorb it that fast. So um, bo bottom line, um, one of the most egregious parts of the bill um, and, and Farm Bureau can attest to this, is it allows for eminent domain. Um, it allows for a private energy company in the central part of the state to run through the state of Illinois. Um, the state of Illinois, ironically, will not uh, see any benefit uh, from this um, power line running through the state. Um, it is a, a private line. It has never been done before. You know, the sponsor uh, would would defer to the fact that um, we do we do eminent domain, we do transmission lines, um, we do transmission lines all the all the time through the state. And and yes, in fact, we do. But we do those for uh, public entities and and uh, rural infrastructure and and. Um, municipal infrastructure. Um, we have never done it for a private entity, and that is, in fact, what's in this bill. Um, uh, ironically, I, I think that if we looked on some of our colleagues' uh, D2 reports, um, we would see that, that that private entity has certainly been a donor um, to their campaigns. Um, you know, we talk about the fact that this, this will make Illinois uh, fossil-free by a, a certain date. Um, in fact, it won't, uh, because we don't have the capability in the state of Illinois uh, to make up for that energy. So we will be buying our energy from uh, fossil fuels from Indiana and Kentucky and, and, and other states, and uh, paying quite the premium for them, by the way, because uh, we can pound our chest and say um, we're fossil-free um, in, in the state of Illinois. Uh, another part of the, um, the, the, the absolute heresy in this bill, it does not affect the state-owned coal-powered plants. Mm -hmm. So our state capital is powered by a state-owned coal power plant, just blocks away from the capital. That 
plant is not part of this legislation. Um, another thing that I think should bring people pause, uh, the peaker plants um, that are uh, really absolutely, they are vital to, to our energy sources. Um, they, are, they go off grid in 2030. Um, there's, there's no discussion about it. They are off grid in 2030. So, you know, if you like what's going on in Texas and California, you're going to love what's going to go on in the state of Illinois because um, it is going to be incredible. And at the end of the day, it's going to be the ratepayers and it's going to be our manufacturers that are paying a premium the likes of which they have never seen before. We have lost so many manufacturing jobs in the state of Illinois, and this is going to exacerbate that problem. Ken? I think there's one thing you as legislators can explain, which, which I think might be the key issue from a farm standpoint, and that was the private property rights and eminent domain. We know that a lot of times eminent domain is used in order to to take or have access to, to private lands. But it's not clear to me, and I think you need to explain to farmers the difference when you're talking about eminent domain for a private company, as opposed to, is something like Ameren a public company because it's um, publicly structured? I mean, what's the, what's the difference in this case because that's the big concern of farmers is, is this thing related to eminent domain. What's the difference between this company having eminent domain rights and all of the others that have eminent domain rights? So this is a private company um, outlined in the bill that this will apply to seven counties in the central part of the state. Um, and. What it means is this will set a precedent. Never in the history of the state of Illinois have we ever allowed eminent domain for a private company. So we, we, we do it for Grain Belt Express in, in these seven counties. Now you've set a precedent. Now there's, now there's people coming back to you and saying, I want to run this in the northern part of the state from river to river. and." And, well, you can't do that. Well, yes, I can, because you've already set a precedent in this bill. So um, th but, there but is... No, and I would weigh in, I would weigh in that uh, government has eminent domain powers. Correct. Private enterprise has never had that Correct. power to say, we can take your land, we'll have to pay you a reasonable price, an appraised price, or whatever, but if an individual doesn't want to sell to Ameren a, a right-of-way or, or the like or say a, a wind uh, company coming through or a solar field they don't have to sell their property okay. they do not have that power the government authority to be taken to court and say you have to sell they can decline and and that's the uh, slippery slope that we don't okay. want to start because uh, government is the only entity that has that capability to exercise powers of eminent domain. But once you uh, open it up to private okay. enterprise where an individual is forced to sell their property no, I understand and be taken to court, it's a, it's a huge change in the way things are done in this country. And if I could read from the analysis we're provided, it says, under transmission line build-outs, allows entities, allows entities seeking to build direct current bulk transmission services to apply to the ICC as a utility for a certificate of public conveyance and necessity to construct, operate, maintain qualifying direct current projects. There are two large transmission projects proposed. One's the Grain Belt Express, which is proposed across the counties of Pike, Scott, Green, Macoupin, Montgomery, Christian, Shelby, Cumberland, and Clark and it's to connect Kansas and Indiana with an 800-mile high-voltage line carrying 4,000 megawatts. The second one is the Sioux Green uh, underground transmission line, and it's running from Iowa to Illinois up in the northern portion of Illinois. So those two will have those eminent domain for them. 
those are the proposed, not to say that others can't be added to. Brian Duncan, who's our vice president with the Illinois Farm Bureau, certainly breaking news for you today to hear this fresh from Springfield from our state legislators. Sounds like you may be on the phone with other vice presidents from farm bureaus uh, in Indiana and Kansas and places like that. Yeah, I hope they keep their power plants open. Uh, that's and, and that's the reality. So, so as representatives and senators said, Illinois Farm Bureau opposed this legislation from the beginning. We had a variety of concerns. First of all, was affordability and reliability. Uh, I met with the governor uh, briefly, and I told him, my hog building fans, my hog building fans can't shut off. You know, and I know air conditioning is great, but uh, if the hog building fans shut off, we've got serious problems with with keeping our animals alive. And uh, so this is this is really at the base of good animal husbandry, as far as reliable electricity. And so then then the next part was affordability, and baseload generation, right? And 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 having it be something we can afford. And then at the end of the day, the real sticking point, the most objectionable for us was the eminent domain issue. I mean, private property rights are the holy grail of Farm Bureau, and, and this is a, a really, really troubling precedent to set. And, and I just do want to stress, uh, echo what Representative Hammond said, the only reason we can go um, fossil fuel free is because the states around us aren't and we can go buy power from their coal-fired plants and put it into our grid. That's, that's just such a huge, uh, maybe hypocrisy is, not the, is, is a hard word, but it seems pretty hypocritical to us if we're still gonna be sourcing coal from pow from, or power from coal-generated plants. Why don't we have those plants running in this state and the revenue and the jobs and all of that and at a lower price that comes with it? Um, there's a lot of political uh, gamesmanship and perhaps ambitions all wrapped up into this bill. Okay. And uh, Representative Swanson, reliable electricity, you touched on that at the breakfast this morning and now uh, Vice President Duncan has again. Reliable electricity, explain that further, what, what you're worried about, what could be the foreseeable future. Well, and, and we're already experiencing it. Uh, my seatmate, Charlie Meyer from Oakville, um, he has, he's from Oakville, there's several dairy farms down there, and he spoke very passionately about Prairie State and what we could see in the future because they're already experiencing it there. Um, on days with high electricity demands of a hot day or maybe it's a cold day, the farmers and businesses are notified, hey, you've got to go to alternate power. So they have to go out and hook their tractors up to generators to run their milking machines or, or turn the generators on to run their factories or their businesses because they do not have reliable power. And uh, you know, so they're, they go through blackout periods and, and those rolling blackouts as we experienced in Iraq um, are not, we don't wanna be a third world state. I mean, it's just, it, it's how do we plan a day when electricity is going to be available Three, hour, three hours out of an eight-hour day, or eight-hour time period. So, um, you know, the reliability, we all expect when we go turn a switch on, it's gonna work. If it doesn't, we're frustrated. And then we change the light bulb and it works. But how many times when our electricity's been out because of a storm, we inadvertently just stupidly go throw that switch and expect it to come on, then you realize, well, electricity's off. And uh, you know, even during a storm, our electricity gets off, goes off. We get so frustrated and start cussing the power plants and stuff. But that's not going to be the reality if this goes through. As I, as I talked on the House floor last night, I kept asking what the Plan B was. Right. Because Prairie State's to be shut down by 2045, but they have to meet a 45% emission reduction by 2035. And if they do not meet that by then they shut down 2035. So these people are planning a 14-year cycle right now. And, and remember, Prairie State was opened up by President Obama, Vice President Biden, and Governor Quinn as it, after it met all the federal requirements and federal regulations at that time in 2012. So, okay. um, you know, it's great our nuclear power plant's gonna remain open, but um, Prairie State, 2.5 million customers and to put it in, in a, a position of what it's going to take to, to equal that power in solar, 
it would take 123,000 acres of solar panels to provide enough energy for those 2.5 million customers. And uh, that's a lot of ground out of ag production because um, they're not going to go in Lake Michigan. They're going to come out here on our farms. Brian Duncan. And I, and I think it's important to note here as well, uh, you know, farmers and our organizations supports clean energy, renewable energy. We live out here. We want clean air. We just make to, we need to make sure we're going about uh, about sourcing our electricity in a wise way, and especially for the state of Illinois. As you look at the economic uh, situation faced by state government, um, we still are convinced that economic growth is a key to working ourselves, digging ourselves out of the hole. We can't tax ourselves enough to pay for the unpaid bills and the, and the pension liabilities. And so as you look at economic growth, that means bringing businesses, bringing, bringing people into Illinois. And if we can't offer affordable, reliable power, that's going to be very challenging and it's going to leave the rest of us who are stuck here because we can't move our farms out of state to pay an ever-increasing bill. Jim Lighting, who is our president and CEO of Big River Resources, which you have plants in multiple states, including Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, Galva, Burlington, right here in, as our goalposts right here. How do you react to this information this morning? The, the concern, obviously, that we would have um, this would be the largest rate increase for industrial users in the history of Illinois. And um, if you add that higher cost of power, bringing it in from out of state, uh, we could see uh, just for our Galva plant alone, a uh, $500,000 impact on an annual basis on our utility bills. Um, the Galva facility uh, processes 40 million bushels of corn. State of Illinois is in the Midwest and our farm customers uh, have benefited from our business that's there. <clears throat> the ethanol industry is very competitive. We have excess capacity and so as an industry ensuring that we have competitive utility rates. Uh, that plant uh, has a nine megawatt load running 24-7, um, 353 days a year. And uh, if we lose our peaking plants, um, we can't just shut down and wait. Uh, so I think we've got some real concerns here. The other thing I noticed when I looked through some of the information on the bill, uh, there's a real focus uh, on electric vehicles as far as encouraging them. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm all for electric vehicles. I think we need to understand uh, we're talking about coal power to fuel those electric vehicles and we're trying to be fossil fuel free. Um, Ethanol is 46% less uh, carbon intensive than gasoline. Liquid fuels are not going away anytime soon. If you look at EIA stats by 2050, they think we may be at 20% electrification on, on vehicles. So we've got a long road here and I'm seeing a lot of push and, and toward what we view as lower carbon transportation. And I think we need to really understand, is it lower carbon transportation or not? Uh, we feel that <clears throat> ethanol uh, is a, a part of the solution. When, California as a leader with their CARB, uh, the interesting fact that they determined in looking at reducing their carbon footprint is their largest contributing factor has been ethanol in their fuel in reducing their carbon footprint. And so I think those that kind of information needs to be understood. And when you look at the state of Illinois, and the value of the ag production, the value of the jobs that we're providing and other ethanol producers are providing, 
to increase our costs of operating, we've got to pass it on either to the consumer or to our farm customer. Uh, so those are very serious things. When you start adding to the costs of doing business in the state of Illinois, um, so we're we're concerned about it. Uh, with the the power reliability, the cost of the power, and the ability to compete uh, with other states that have manufacturing friendly policies. Representative Hammond has comments. I'll just make a quick comment, uh, Jim. When you when you speak about the electric um, vehicle part of the the legislation, um, according to our analyst, it this bill as passed effectively um, it eliminates the alternative fuels act and replaces it with the electric vehicle rebate act. Um, interestingly enough it offers a $4,000 rebate for purchase on an electric vehicle. But um, for those of us that are sitting in this room, um, in, including Brian, we are not eligible because it is not across the entire state of Illinois. Uh, that rebate is only applicable to uh, people that live and purchase that vehicle in Cook, DuPage, Kane, Lake, McHenry, Will, a couple of townships in Grundy County, and uh, one township in Kendall County. Um, and the EPA will uh, give priority uh, to individuals that are um, within 80 percent, um, less than 80 percent of the state's um, medium income. So uh, th th it's just one more example of how um, poorly crafted um, this bill is and the fact that um, the authors of it and those that are were involved in putting it together um, first of all don't understand um, agriculture at all and they certainly don't understand the impact that this is going to have on our manufacturers and our communities in central and southern Illinois. Senator Tracy, are they, is this legislation, um, I'm late to the party, I haven't read it, so with the electric vehicles, is it something that they're wanting the entire state to adopt, or are they hoping geographically, where there's more traffic and more cars, that the electricity will be more favorable in those areas? Well, I will say, I was on the energy working group throughout last summer, and <clears throat> they were asking us where we might put transmission or the, the electric charging stations. And we were asked to give uh, suggestions of where we might use them. So apparently, this is in the thought process, but um, truthfully, I have not studied about the electric car part because I think that was added on from the time that the, the House took it up after the Senate passed it because this is kind of a new area that I am not familiar with it being in this bill. Um, Interesting enough, everybody thinks the Senate will take this bill up on Monday, and as I sit here, I've not been notified that that's the case. And I keep checking my um, phone to see if I've been alerted that we are to go back. But I, of course, would not support the bill. I don't know if it'll, I don't see that it will change from the time that the Senate sends it over. But uh, it just, it makes no sense to me from a perspective of when I, I started in the House in 2006, nuclear bills were not favored whatsoever. We have a, a, a flagship of nuclear power that is essential to this state in supplying energy to Illinois. But uh, for a long time, they were, they were uh, not seen as desirable as much as maybe, say, Prairie State or some of our, our coal-fired plants uh, because they're, they always have to ha be subsidized and it's a little bit more expensive than our coal-fired plants. What's been interesting to me is that when this governor took over and wanted to make us a net carbon, we saw a change in the energy policy of this state. And I represent uh, Havana in Mason County, and I also represented part of Fulton County, where Canton. And so two coal-fired plants there that provided excellent jobs, were a liable tax base to that, those communities, they've been closed. 
and the aftermath has been just devastating to those communities. Uh, we still have Prairie State and uh, say the city of Springfield also has a coal-fired plant that provides very affordable energy. As uh, was mentioned by my house colleagues, those plants were built in 2008 under very stringent environmental concerns uh, when Joe Biden was president or vice president and President Obama was uh, the president. They were, they were very expensive because of meeting those and they had bonds sold and a lot of our uh, co-ops that provide, provide rural electricity, they bought those bonds and that's what provides us in our rural areas with energy. Uh, they also provide a lot of the suburbs with power. I think it, they provide, Prairie State uh, provides 2.5 million homes with power and uh, the bonds that go with them have to be paid and it's just, uh, this whole energy policy has just amazed me at how it's evolved and they want to become a, a net carbon state and as mentioned earlier not all of our neighboring communities or states are net carbon and to put us in a position where we are going from affordable and reliable power in the state of Illinois that has been conducive to economic development of manufacturing concerns uh, when that's one of the few things we've got going for us as a state to bring in economic development. We have high taxes, we have a lot of other negatives, but the fact that we had affordable and reliable power from these coal plants, uh, and it was complemented with our nuclear flagship, and now to make us at a point where we don't know if we'll have that reliable and affordable power uh, because of this driven net carbon uh, policy that the governor and uh, some of the environmentalists have taken on. I mean, as everybody says, we want clean air, we want to be sustainable, but we also need to go at it in a, a, a manner that doesn't jeopardize where we are right now. Uh, so I, uh, back to the, the electric cars, I'm not sure where that's going. I mean, uh, you know, I think there's been great advances with making electric car batteries more uh, sustainable as far as the miles being driven but you know we, we just can't jump around and do these things without a plan B has been said or just to, to do it in a fashion where we have to consider what happens if we can't meet these standards and what happens if we have blackouts brownouts when we have thrown the baby out with the bathwater when we have reliable and affordable power right now it just makes no sense to me ron moore since the camera is on you we'll go ahead and start with you as our local farmer as well as the retired asa chairman your thoughts and of course we will get into some good news some potential good news uh, regarding the next generation fuels act that's on the table at the federal level but your thoughts so far on what you've heard from your legislators wow um, <laughs> um, since we're on the radio, I might not give you my initial thoughts <clears throat> because this is, to me, this is um, typical overreach of government. Um, it it doesn't make any sense to me, as as our legislators have said. Um, which is especially troubling is the eminent domain thing on a private company. Um, that, um, you know, we've had wind farms in our county. If a wind farm deems that my property is the best place to put a wind tower and I don't want it on my property, they can, and if this legislation passes, they can put a wind farm on my property without my permission which no, is that's not that's not correct. that's not true that's, well, that's not good true. i'm glad to hear that yeah so ahead, let's Brian. not let's not have any misconceptions here this bill gives limited eminent domain authority to the private transmission line going through seven counties that's what this bill does what farm bureau is afraid of it sets a precedent that may allow eminent domain authority to be given to other private entities in the future. So let's not have any misunderstanding coming from this radio broadcast. This does not grant eminent domain authority to solar companies or wind companies. So thanks for the, the clarification, Brian. But still, uh, you mentioned it, that once the precedent is set, legislature can do whatever they feel is necessary 
in the future. And so I'm opposed to this precedent being set because of that potential um, ability to ch change the laws at some future congression or legislative session. And that really makes me nervous about where the, the state government is going with all of this. Dan, you had some comments? Yeah, one, we've talked about um, nuclear, we've talked about solar, we've talked about wind, we've talked about coal, but we've not talked about natural gas. Um, natural gas also comes into play in that all natural gas use is to be, um, natural gas plants are to be closed by 2045. Um, so the smaller ones will be closed first and then the largest ones towards the um, 2045 time period. So. Um, so how will we receive, because if I want to cook, I only have electricity or natural gas, right? Correct. So what would be, how would that feed? Well, that's part of my, or what I consider to be a plan B. What is going to be that okay. alternative? Um, chopping wood, going back to wood fireplaces, I don't know. But um, yeah, it's not going to be able to just turn a, like I used the example earlier of a light switch or go over to turn the knob on a, on a stove. Um, is that 2045 so okay um, you know we look at alternative sources for drying our corn and and things like that uh, what, what are we gonna have speaking of drying corn let's bring in Jake Armstrong uh, with Cameron grain of course uh, your comments sir yeah that was my first thought when you said no more natural gas in 2045 it's like well how are we gonna dry all the millions and billions of bushels we grow as a state how are we gonna handle it how are we gonna continue to fuel ethanol how are we gonna continue to feel the world feed the world with fibers and fuels that we grow in here I I mean we deal with um, quote unquote brownouts with our natural gas already with peak demand days that's just part of owning an elevator you just have to deal with it on the natural gas side we do not have to deal with that on the electricity side yet um, but I couldn't imagine not having any access to it for months on end it's that's a scary reality for me and Vanessa I was gonna know if I could we, we mentioned peaker plants yeah. and the peakers are are the ones that supply energy during those periods when your electricity demand is too great and those have to be closed by 2030 correct 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 and so there you go that's tomorrow for all purposes <laughs> okay um chris gavin you're a banker <laughs> time to bring in the the gentleman that, that you know has to talk to his farmers and is going to hear from his farmers yeah it's all real scary um you know it was uh yeah, it was kind of this morning's breakfast. It was kind of an eye-opener, ear-opener uh, for a lot of us to hear some of this going on. So, yeah, and I think you have all this um, happening right now. But, you know, the immediate thing, too, that we're worried about um, is inflation. And um, I think the wage inflation that's happening is not going to go away. Uh, inflation that's happening um, on the ag side is, is concerning as well. Um, we have, uh, you know, it seems like there was a small window, you know, a year ago we, we were in a position where we just started to see everything rebound um, with commodity prices and, um, and we, had some, we had some yields where people were able to capitalize on those commodity prices. Uh, it, I just read an article yesterday, you know, the margins on corn and soybeans um, have kind of just, we had some really good margins earlier in the year and last fall and going into you know, next year, those have disappeared. Um, I saw where the margin on corn went from like $150 an acre to $20 an acre. You know, that, that's what's happening. So it's kind of like, um, you know, the things are changing so rapidly right now that you know, it's really hard to, whether it be on this energy side or, you know, with, with the inflation that's going on, um, somebody, a friend of mine, told me that uh, it's kind of like, he kind of feels like that the government's putting $2 in my in my front pocket and taking $5 out of my back pocket, you know? So it's just it's just really hard to understand where this is all gonna end up. Um, but, but, but with that said, um, it's a beautiful day here in Western Illinois. Uh, harvest is gonna start, we, you know, I know we heard from the agronomist this morning about the yields is gonna be very varied. 
but overall I think you know we're we're thankful for that you know again I think that our farmers are are going to made good money last year they should do well this fall but we're kind of worried about what next year looks like sure and uh, finally uh, Brendan Marshall before we transition into the next generation fuels act uh, your concern of course is the costs because that's your job is to help your farmer manage costs yeah, I mean, Chris did a very interesting point that last year, you know, with, with the production and we had low inputs a year ago right now. We had very low inputs and we saw the market start to go back up. You know, one of my customers, Ron Moore, sitting on the other side can attest to that. And now, as we watch this year go through, um, we had a really good crop that's been hit by a lot of disease and people are really worried about it. And there's a lot of bushels out there that we got to try to pick up because you sell bushels. And now we're looking at the fact that, you know, we had a hurricane a couple weeks ago that is stopping a lot of movement coming up this river, especially in anhydrous and fertilizers and that, and that's making prices go up. Um, you know, ammonia prices usually follow the, you know, or any nitrogen follows the trend of what corn or soybeans do. And so now it's uh, a lot of decisions being made on, uh, you know, you got to do a lot of budgeting. Well, you know, there's a lot of other things that are coming to play as you read. Um, chemicals or some of the chemistry that's not going to be around or it's going to be scarce next year. Not trying, trying to put a scare on anybody, but uh, we look into those things as my company. I mean, we try to secure those things early and mm -hmm. there is a scarcity of some things that, you know, there's been some plants that have been idled because of the hurricane or because of the things we had last winter when um, the ice storms they had in Texas and in the lower states that have not caught up to our demand. So. Okay. Thank you, Brendan. Ron, did you want to add anything else to that section before we, we move on? Well, a little bit. Uh, Brendan's right. The costs are going up. Um, estimates of case rents are going up. Um, you can't buy tractors now to, because of the chip shortage, because of the shutdowns of, of overseas makers of the, of the computer chips. Um, Chris is right. We we made be decent money last year. We should make if you sold ahead on your corn and soybeans, and you should be okay for this year. But next year is a, a totally different um, scenario, and and farmers are used to highs and lows, and most veteran farmers kind of understand that this is a one or two year. Um, high profit profitability uh, we need to plan for the the next three to five years where the profitability is or profitability is not going to be there thank you very much ron we're going to combine topics one and four so talk about some potentially good news rob elliott uh you are up next you and uh, brian duncan jim lighting uh as well as ron moore the next generation fuels act i had a chance to talk with sherry bustos for the wiswell robeson lecture earlier this week on tuesday she seemed extremely positive that it was a big topic at the farm progress show and that it was well received in washington dc can you give us the highlights and what you think uh, the impact will be Sure. Uh, let me let me explain just a little bit. And, and ag groups worked very closely with uh, Congresswoman Bustos, who's done a great job with this Next Generation Fuels Act, which got reintroduced a, about a week or so ago, something like that. But <clears throat> really, back back to uh, picking winners and losers, as Noreen was talking about a minute ago on electric vehicles. We we seem to be in the business of financing and picking winners and losers. losers and electric vehicles have been uh, the recipient of, of a lot of that support. But And, and that comes at the expense, possibly, of uh, ethanol uh, renewable fuels and our ag community uh, and the like so <clears throat> really what this next generation fuels act is all about it's about high octane and low carbon we can we can accomplish some of these low carbon goals but uh, ethanol can be a contributor to do that what it does it establishes a fuel standard and uh, it comes in two pieces. In five years, it's 20% ethanol level, uh, which is what's called a 95 RON, which is kind of complicated, but uh, research octane number. In 10 years, it goes to 30%. That would allow the autos, as we talked about here at some time back, and I think Sherry alluded to it, she kind of came to that uh, knowledge when we had that discussion here a little bit to build cars that have higher compression engines that are much smaller and as a result they have significantly higher horsepower and, and achieve, achieve greater mileage. 
right now the CAFE standard, or <clears throat> excuse me, corporate average fuel economy is driving automakers and forcing them to go to electric vehicles because they have no choice. They have to do that per the government. What this allows is though to achieve those CAFE standard with a more efficient engine coupled with the higher octane fuel to go go with it. So so what's that do? Re reduces greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we've got fewer carcinogens, the bad stuff in our in our fuel. It gets rid of the aromatics, the benzene, toluene, xylene kind of components which which are, are not particularly good. It gives consumers a, a better overall opportunity for a fuel choice at hopefully a lower cost and uh, it, it really puts liquid fuels back on a level playing field with the electric folks. Uh, the electric folks are treated as magic, which they're not if you dig back into them, uh, and pr probably a good opportunity for those of us in ag and folks like Big River and the like to uh, have an opportunity to compete in the upcoming future here, so big deal. Yes, Brian Duncan, before I go to Jim Lighting, real quick, how do the oil companies perceive this legislation? Because you have a third competitor with electric. Are they, is there a possibility that a, a positive connection between ethanol and oil could be in the foreseeable future? My understanding is uh, they are very interested about this because they are facing, again, being uh, not a winner as Rob said in this whole selection process of winners and losers. So there is an opportunity here uh, for oil fossil fuels to come to the table and be part of this solution that answers some of the questions, I'm, try I'm trying to pick my words here, some of the questions that arise around electric vehicles as far as not only the power generation, but some of the limitations, some of the questions around the batteries, uh, how they're made, what they're, what's done with them at disposals. I mean, there there is just a lot of questions that I haven't heard answered very satisfactorily yet. And I think this low carbon, high octane fuel provides uh, some of the answers uh, uh, in carbon friendly, um, engine operation and, and, and transportation. I think there's real hope here and I think uh, the oil companies, at least if they were, if they're smart, and I think they probably are, uh, come to the table along with the auto manufacturers and say this is, a, this is a good workable solution going forward. Jim Lighting, of course, same question to you about the oil companies. Uh, you know, that's been a very big challenge for you throughout the years for obvious reasons. Everybody wants a piece of that, that uh, profit, but, but now things are different. Um, I think that there has been oil interest that have participated in a working group that worked to bring this about. And uh, Brian's correct. Um, by moving in this manner, you are part of the solution. And currently, to add to this a little bit, I'm going off stream, but there's some big efforts on carbon sequestration and it's looking at ammonia plants and ethanol plants that have a clean CO2 stream where they would take that carbon and sequester it in deep um, ge geological formations. ADM is doing that currently down by Decatur and there's a big movement to that. If we're successful on that, we're gonna go from a uh, 40% reduction in carbon intensity to something dramatically more for the ethanol piece. The ethanol is the lowest source of octane, so it would grow and support agriculture as we have potentially a shrinking uh, liquid fuels market between mileage and uh, electrification of transportation. So it might be a nice fit that ethanol is part of the solution and it can become more of this part of the solution to decarbonize our transportation sector when you bring all of these things together. 
Uh, part of the legislation also addresses some issues that have been endemic out in the EPA. The MOVES model is a uh, model that the EPA has used that uh, potentially could be detrimental to uh, ethanol as an oxygen in fuels and it would replace it with Argon Labs GREET model um, and it gets into certification fuels and some of the aromatics that Robin indicated we can remove some of that for health reasons from our fuels so I this legislation if we can carry it through I think it's a very big positive it uh, supports the ag sector it supports uh, the Midwest the rural communities our jobs and uh, it helps to decarbonize our economy and so it's a very positive piece of legislation if all of those things can come about the reality of uh, what we anticipate on electric vehicles and the timeline is so long if we can do some of these and be part of the solution the goal is reducing our net carbon footprint so let's make sure we're using the tools we have today that are here and be part of that solution let's not knock them out in the rush to go to what we view or current uh, popularity wants to view as the ultimate solution so we're very positive we're uh, very thankful for representative bustos on working with the group to pull this together national corn uh, was very involved uh, and the ethanol associations ron moore how does the next generation fuels act benefit soybean farmers well anytime you can make legislation that improves uh, use of, of uh, redu reducing the noxious emissions out of our fuel system that's a good thing and that's I'm not familiar with the legislation but it's, from what I've heard today it sounds sounds very good there is a new um, diesel fuel it's called renewable diesel fuel which is made from vegetable oils which is soybean oil or animal fats or recycled cooking oil it's further refined but the renewable diesel is is 100 percent diesel fuel but it's made from um, vegetable oil and what the things i mentioned before which is little different than biodiesel so biodiesel is is you add to the petroleum-based diesel fuel and renewable diesel fuel is is 100 percent renewables that's what it says and so that's um a, a product that's one of the new uses that has been coming down the pike for for soybeans right now okay is there anything anyone wants to add to these two uh, topics here before we take a break and come back with I know it's already 11 o'clock uh, get the legal ID out of the way too you're listening to WRAM in Monmouth Illinois any other comments Chris Gavitt yeah, just that um, while we were doing this, I got online and ordered my generator for my house just to see what's coming. So you might want to do that because I think there's going to be a kind of a rush on those. So. However, what he failed to, to figure out is what fuel is he going to put in it. You know, that's the thing. So you know what? I, I would have a comment, Vanessa. And I think apathy is our enemy. And for those of us in rural America, we're trusting people and pretty good folks. And we tend to let somebody else determine our destiny way too much. And I think what our, our legislative partners here have talked about this morning is, is indicative of what's happening at a state as well as at a national level. You can accomplish any of these goals and lofty targets you want to if you spend enough money doing it and can find enough willing souls to give you their paycheck to, to pay for the government's expenses. And as well, they forget about the implications that go with them. So uh, when you got an, a, a loud enough voice and enough people screaming, anything can seem to make sense and it seems to be kind of the world we're living in today. 
So if we got rural Americans out there, you better speak up. You should be mad as hell as what's going on. So Well put, Rob. Great, great time to take a break and come back with that energy level. Uh, when we come back, Ken is going to start us off with the federal policy legislation regarding the components of the infrastructure plan that includes locks, dams, ports, bridges, roads, also tax structure to pay for the package. Um, there's different names uh, on these tax rates. Uh, we'll get into that as we open up and come back. You are listening to the t uh, 2021 FS Ag Roundtable. We'll be back with more on WRAM. W231DA, WRAM Monmouth, your favorite country, your home in the country, FM 94.1 and AM 1330 WRAM. When it comes to squeezing the most fuel efficiency out of every gallon of diesel fuel, there's nothing better than Diesel X Gold from FS. Modern engines are designed with more power while preventing harmful emissions. Diesel X Gold keeps them operating that way with its advanced detergent chemistry that keeps injectors operating like new and its healthy dose of cetane improver that makes sure engines start quickly and combust fuel more completely. So count on Diesel X Gold from FS. Absolutely the best fuel to power and protect diesel engines. Visit GoFurtherWithFS.com for more information. There's something about summer that makes all things seem possible.